Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. Today we're actually going to be back in this series called Rediscovering Church. It's been this beautiful series that we've been going through out of the book of 1 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians, whatever you want to say. But if you need a Bible, um, you can put your hand in the air and we've got a couple of people around the room that would love to give you one for the morning. If you don't own it, you can keep it. If you do have a Bible, please open to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Brief recap. Um, Paul and Silas had planted this church. So this is, this is a letter here. And Paul and Silas had planted this church in Thessalonica, but had to flee the city because of persecution. And so this is Paul's attempt. This letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the church there and the people there. Um, and at the beginning of this series, Shelby did a beautiful job of walking out like some of the things behind it, far more of the context and everything going on. I would encourage you to check that out. Um, Sarah, did you get a Bible? Did you need a Bible right up here? Did you need one? Can we get a Bible up here, guys? Thanks. Appreciate it. Anybody else? Awesome. 1 Thessalonians. Um, so really, the, the framework of this letter is really beautiful and really, really simple. The first part of this letter, chapter 1 through 3, it, Paul is celebrating the faithfulness of the church in, Thessalonians, um, or in Thessalonica during the persecution. He's celebrating it, right? The second part of this um, letter is actually saying, okay, here's some areas where we need to grow in, okay? So these are the two main movements. The beginning of the letter is a, is a prayer. The closing of the letter, it concludes in a prayer. And right smack dab in the middle, connecting these two movements together is this really beautiful little prayer. Essentially, it's the center of the book. And this is the passage that we're gonna be focusing on today. It's a prayer. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, okay, I'm about to say some hard things. But before I really get into these hard things, I'm actually going to ask that the Spirit would fill you and allow you to listen and to hear, to shape your heart and your mind and your ears, to hear what it is that I'm about to speak to you. And then he goes into it. And it's really important for us, and for sure more on this in a minute, to remember that what this prayer is actually about. It's a prayer because he's saying, I'm about to say some hard things and you're going to need the Spirit to help you. So turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to go to chapter 3, and if you would stand with me, we're going to go to chapter 3, start in verse 11. And before I read this prayer, I am going to pray. Holy Spirit, come this morning. Come this morning and fill this space. Jesus, in the same way that Paul wrote this letter, in the same way that he prayed this prayer, we ask for the same thing, that your spirit would fill us, would open our ears, our hearts, our minds, to not just the words being spoken, no, but, but to your spirit speaking. And if your spirit wants to say something totally different, that's what's on the notes this morning, I pray that that would be what's communicated in our hearts and minds this morning. Starting in verse 11. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. 
And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen. You can grab a seat. So I'm going to tackle this passage today verse by verse, and, and really we're going to go pretty quickly for the, through the first two verses and spend most of the time this morning camping on that, on verse 13 there. So let's just get into it. Lots to tackle today. Here we go. Verse 11 says this, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Right away, we see that Paul is resigned to the will of the Father. Right away, we see like, hey, Paul is saying, first of all, may God clear the way for us to come to you. But, but he's, he's saying that whatever's going on, I don't know. I, I, it could be the persecution in the church that Paul is like keeping him from going. I don't know. It could be something else completely. But we know that whatever it is, Paul is saying, I know that God could clear it. He has the power, the authority to, to clear the way. And he also has the sovereignty to not clear the way if he doesn't want to. Either way, Paul is... Paul is resigned to the reality that God is in the ultimate control. And so the first part of this prayer is really quite simple. Paul is just recognizing God's place. He's saying God's authority, God's power. And if you've ever get, get stuck in your prayer life, if you're ever not sure where to start, or there's so many things, I don't even really know where to begin, this is a good place to start. God, you, you, you are the ultimate. You are all power, all authority. It's a beautiful way to begin. Verse 12, he moves on. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. What, what's interesting about this passage, may the Lord make your love increase. Well, in Galatians 5, we read about the fruit of the Spirit, and it says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And what I really love about that passage is that you can actually should properly read it with a colon after that word love. Essentially, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then the rest of the words, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that defines love. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit, so we know it's singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love, which is all these other things. And so what Paul is saying is, may the Spirit fill you up so that his fruit overflows out of you into others. Again, why is Paul praying this? Listen, remember, he knows he's going to push them. He knows he's about to push and, 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 and he wants their hearts, he wants their ears to be open, but they're going to need to learn how to love each other, how to be patient with each other, how to be joyful with each other, how to be peaceful with each other. See, Jesus points at this a little bit in Matthew 7. He says this in Matthew 7. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? This is what Paul's getting at here. I'm going to push you and you're going to probably get convicted. And when you do, don't look at the plank or the speck in your brother's eye first. Make sure that your love overflows out of you to them and you actually look within first. I don't know why it's so easy for us to instantly, when we get feeling like a little bit convicted or feeling a little bit, where we instantly think, oh, that would be really good for this person to hear. Or, or why we automatically connect a fault or a problem or a wrong, for sure not with us, but that person, oh, they, they should have really heard this teaching. I gotta send them this podcast, it's so good. Right? We start this from a young age. I have four kids. 
My oldest, um, Chandler, uh, he's now in high school, but this is back when he was like seven years old. And here's the deal. A couple things about stories with my kids. Um, one, they're all true, okay? Two, it's true. Two, I get permission, all right? I do. I get permission from the kids. Actually, I realized I didn't get permission for this one. Sorry, bud. Um, I've told it before, though, and you gave me permission before. We're good to go. Okay. Whoops. I always, almost always get permission. I hate it when people don't get permission from their kids, but not me. Anyway. Um, so Chandler and Lincoln were little, um, and Chandler had just heard, had just learned this really funny little ditty. You all know it. It goes like this. You're going to have to help me sing it, though. Mommy and Daddy sitting in a tree. Right? I have a couple questions about this. Who's going around and teaching our children these things? No self-respecting parent teaches this. No self-respecting parent teaches your kids how to play Marco Polo in the pool, and yet every child knows how to play, right? Or Jingle Bells, Batman Smells. Who's teaching our children these things? I don't know that somebody is, right? And so my, my child learned this. Don't know where he learned it from, but he was so excited to try it out on us. So he says, mommy and daddy sitting in a tree, K-S-S-S-S-S-S-G. And he was thrilled with himself, right? He was so thrilled. Well, Lincoln, who was just a year younger, was just thought it was the coolest thing ever and wanted to try it. So Lincoln's, mommy and daddy are in the tree and L-M-N-O-P. And Chandler says, Lincoln, that's not how you spell it. <laughs> Instantly pointing at the fault of somebody else instead of, right? We laugh now, but, but for us today, it still shows up. It's like, I can't believe my coworker is being so selfish. She just wants what she wants when the reality is that it should happen how I want it to, right? Like all of a sudden we're like, what, what's going on here? We, we, we point quickly at the faults of other people. However, what Paul is praying for is a type of, of love that when the spirit overflows out of you, it won't point at the faults of others, but actually love them in spite of it that is able to love those around us in spite of the speck in their own eye. It's not saying there's no speck. There's probably a speck. There's probably a couple. It just says, love them in spite of it. If our beings, our whole, our whole bodies are designed as image bearers of God, and they are, then a proper image of Jesus for us to bear would be one of love. And doesn't it say, though, that his scripture, in Scripture that his kindness leads us to repentance? Yes, Romans 2. His kindness leads us to repentance. It's not our theology. It's not our ability to win an argument. It's his kindness. I've, you know, I've never heard this story. I've never heard the story where somebody says, you know what, I just didn't know how much Jesus loved me. But then one day I lost this argument and now I do. I've never heard that story, right? But what I have heard is when people, and I even heard this on Wednesday night when a friend of mine was sharing a little bit about her journey of coming to know Jesus. And one of the things she said is she found herself surrounded by followers of Jesus. And she said over and over, I couldn't believe how kind they were to me. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So first part of this prayer, Paul is recognizing God's authority and power. The second part of this prayer is God is asking that the spirit give them the ability to love each other, to be patient with each other. And then we get to verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. 
Okay, lots going on here. And this is actually, we're gonna be spending the majority of our time. Just look at the first part of this. It says, may he strengthen your hearts. Okay, the idea here behind strengthen isn't like when, when you go and like lifting a whole bunch of weights and your arm gets stronger because of stuff that you're doing. Like you're not strength, you're not building it on your own, right? That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, may he strengthen your hearts. This is like, this is more along the lines of like if your door, like you have your door closed and you want to reinforce the strength of the door, you could bring like a support and lean it against that and make that door stronger. The door itself isn't getting thicker. You're not putting a stronger door on there. It's actually supporting the door that's already there to keep it strong. This is about the spirit coming in and strengthening your heart, essentially giving you the ability to desire, not, not yourself to grow, but the spirit saying, Paul is praying that the spirit would come and actually surround you, give like reinforcing, bringing strength to you, to who you are. This is not about a works-based, you just gotta get a stronger heart. This is about saying, spirit, my heart is weak and I need you, right? May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy. So these two words, blameless and holy, they're not just synonyms in the verse. It's not like Paul's like, how else could I say this? Blameless, and then also, mm, another word, holy. I think oftentimes we connect those as synonyms. They're actually very specific, very unique words. So the word blameless is to be above reproach, a life that's beyond criticism by those around them, whether close up, or from a distance, blameless. Okay, this is faultless. This is irreproachable, blameless, and holy. Okay, we need to do a bit of a deep dive here, so hang with me. I just need to take a minute because there's actually two different types of holiness in Scripture that we see. The first type of holiness is God's holiness. And the Scripture talks all about it. It's all throughout the Bible, the holiness of God. And then we see a call for humans to be holy, like in this passage that we're reading today. And like there's three different times in scripture where God says, be holy as I am holy. So there's two different types of holiness. And I, and, and I, I get that we don't have the space and the time to completely unpack and understand this idea of God's holiness today, because honestly, that's a lifetime work. But what we do have the, day, the time today to do is essentially, if this is what we know about holiness right now, maybe we can just widen the circle a little bit. I know that's been the last two weeks for me as I've been diving into this, even as a follower of Jesus for so long, like it's widened my perspective of what God's holiness is today. And so that's really what we're, we're trying to get to. So this idea of holiness is pretty, pretty massive, it's pretty huge, and it can be confusing, and it's a bit of a loaded word. Because in our English language right now, we don't often use this word. In fact, it, when it's used, it's used either at the beginning of a swear word or it's used as an insult, like somebody being holier than thou, something along those lines. But in the religious circles that we, we run with, we sing this word all the time. We say this word all the time. We pray, or we say, God is holy. We pray, God, make me holy. We sing holy, holy. In fact, did you know this morning, even in the first half of our worship, we sang the word holy 152 times? Maybe, I don't know. I, was just, I, just, I wasn't counting. Did anybody else count? It felt like 152 times. Uh, anyway. I loved it. It was pretty great. Anyway, so there, it's just, we do it all the time. It's pretty often. I mean, some of you are just like, wow, that seems right. That feels right. 153. I mean, that's, that's how often we sing it, right? It's all the time. But, but what's going on here? I think so often this idea of God's holiness gets reduced to this concept of moral perfection. 
Or, or this concept of like, for us to be, to be holy means we have to be a really good person. Or even if we've, if we've taken a step deeper, it's like, well, that means, means to be set apart. Sure, yes, those things are in there. However, holiness, God's holiness, is so much more vast than simply moral perfection. And it's, and it's also, in a weird way, so much more intricate than that. Uh, the Bible Project actually has this beautiful video and several podcasts about God's holiness. And I, I've had so much fun going after that these last two weeks. But and I want to encourage you to check that out. But for right now, I want to just try to boil this down a little bit. In the Bible, holiness describes how God is the creative, ultimate, powerful, and perfect force behind the whole universe. Okay, before we go on, let's just pretend that our human minds have the ability to completely understand the full vastness of the word creative. And let's just pretend that we have the ability to define the complete word of ultimate and powerful and perfect, and we, we can actually define it in its wholeness. We would have to use those complete definitions here. We have to assign it to this when it comes to God's holiness. The absolute, complete creative, the absolute, completely ultimate, powerful, and perfect force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. Now, the Bible Project uses this analogy of the sun, which is actually pretty great. So in our solar system, the sun is unique. And it's, and it's powerful, it's a force, meaning if you get too close to the sun, you will burn up. However, this, in a similar way, the holiness of God also has this power to it. it to the impure, it's dangerous. To those that are not pure before God, his holiness is dangerous. But not because it's bad, but because it's so, so good. And this isn't something that we talk about very often, and more on that in a second. But the holiness of God is this powerful force that's beyond what humans can comprehend, and it's dangerous. It's, it's talked about all through the scripture. When people encounter God's holiness, the response is trembling. The response is fear. Sometimes even the response is death. But somehow, because, because God wants to connect with us in some miraculously crazy way, he actually designed a way for humans in the Old Testament to approach him. He created this thing in the temple. We're not going to get into all the details, but basically we have the temple, then a middle section, and then it keeps going down to the middle of that is the Holy of Holies, where God's holiness dwells. And it was closed with a veil, right? And only at a certain time, in a certain time of year, the, the rabbis, the priests, could approach the holiness, the holy of holies, but they had to make themselves ritually pure. They had to keep themselves from things. There was a list of things that they could do, but God gave the ability from the, if you do these things, then you can approach my holiness and live. But it was still terrifying to them. So much so that they would tie bells onto the edge of their robe and a rope around their ankle. So when they would walk into the Holy of Holies, those standing on the outside, as long as they heard bells, all was good. But if the bells stopped and it was like 15 minutes, we better start pulling that rope to see what's going on in there. You know, that's the reality. They were terrified. 
of this holiness. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. The holiness of God is, is powerful. It's immense. It's more than we can comprehend. And it's dangerous to the impure. Now, I recognize that this is an incredible oversimplification. But what's important to know this morning is that God's holiness is not simply the idea that he is morally pure. It's the reality that he's the one and only creative, ultimate, powerful, and perfect force behind the whole universe and everything in it. Have you ever been in, in, in creation or in a place where you feel small? Like where you all of a sudden recognize that, that, that you're actually not that significant, that, that the creation or... I remember one time, um, I, was, I was quite a bit younger, I think I was 10, 11, 12, something like that, and we were in a kitchen in this home, there's a thunder and lightning storm going, and a bolt of lightning hit the house across the street from us. It was the loudest sound I'd ever heard. It was the, the light. I'll never forget how bright the entire place lit up for just a fraction of a second. And when it was done, every single one of us in the kitchen were on the floor. It was, it was that powerful. And y'all, that's just his creation. That's just like, oh yeah, I just did that. Like that's, that's God's creation. And so even when you, stand, when you stand at like the ocean and you just see the massive force that's rolling, right? And you just feel so small or like at the Grand Canyon or in, or in mountains where you just feel so small. The, the holiness of God has far more to do with the sheer size and power and ultimate perfection of our God and how small we are. And that difference is really what we start talking about when it's the holiness of God. That gets us closer than just talking about another word for blameless or another word for righteous or another word for morally perfect, right? It's just so much, so much larger. Okay, so that's God's holiness in a very small nutshell. Human holiness. Now, human holiness is always derivative of God's holiness. That means it's, it's always a response to God's holiness. Human holiness is aligning, and I, I didn't know the right word here, so I just went with aligning. It could be a whole bunch of things, but basically it's, it's aligning our hearts, our attitudes, our actions, our motives, so all of our being, to the reality that God is the creator and author of all life. So that's his holiness. Our holiness looks like just recognizing that and aligning to it. We could use the word submitting to it. We could use the word um, allowing him to take responsibility in that space. We, whatever, it is, whatever it is, aligning our hearts to the reality that God is the author and the creator. But how can we do that? How can we do that when we who are impure, who are sinful beings, how can we align ourselves with God, God's holiness when we can't even go near it? When, when his holiness is so vast that we, we can't even deal with his creation let alone him as an awesome, perfect God. When the book of Isaiah, um, the prophet Isaiah tells about a vision that he had, and in this vision, he's in the temple. He's in God's holiness in the temple, and he is terrified. And even Isaiah, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. What he's saying is like, I, I, I shouldn't be here. I know the rules. This isn't good for me. I'm going to die if I stay here. 
And yet there's this really strange things that happen. This is kind of this wild story where basically this angel-like creature called a seraphim flies over with a hot coal and sears Isaiah's lips. And the angel says this, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. That's in Isaiah 6. And this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Now, now what's absolutely incredible about this is up until Isaiah's vision, what we're actually getting is this normally, if you were to touch something that was impure, it would transfer its impurity to you. And the same was true vice versa. If you were impure and you were to touch something, you would transfer your impurity to it. It never went the other way around. But in this vision, the coal touches the lips of Isaiah and the coal doesn't become impure. No, Isaiah becomes pure. It, the, 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 the ramifications of this are absolutely huge. Now, now today, we don't have to sit in the time in, in history between Isaiah's vision and the coming of Jesus, right? We actually are on the other side of that where we, we actually know exactly what Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah's vision was foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's holiness, which means when he walked the earth, listen, when he walked the earth, he would touch the sick and make them well. He would touch the leper and make him clean. He would touch the impure and make him pure. Jesus is the holy coal from Isaiah's vision. And this was a shift. As the embodiment of God's holiness, the creative force behind the whole universe, the one and only being with the power to, to make a f world full of such beauty and life, as that embodiment, the impure would become pure. In Isaiah's vision, the holy coal makes him clean, which means he's not destroyed by it, which would, should have been the outcome. That should have been the outcome. Think about the vision that Isaiah had, that holy coal coming, terrifying. He knew that death was right there, but instead of being destroyed by the holiness of God, he's now transformed by the holiness of God. Like that's the gift that we're given today. Because of Jesus, we're not destroyed by the holiness of God. We're transformed by the holiness of God. Remember when Jesus died and, and when he was crucified and the veil, the door of the Holy of Holies was ripped into two? The significance of that is not just to say now everybody can approach God's holiness because of Jesus, though we can. It's also now the holiness of God is flooding out into the whole world and approaching you to make you pure, to make you clean. And we don't have to go through all the steps to become ritually pure. We don't have to be afraid that the holiness of God is going to destroy us in a moment, although it could. But because of Jesus, we have the gift to walk forward and to be on our knees and say, I'm in God's holiness right now because of Jesus. That's what we get to say. And here's the crazy thing. I take that for granted. I take it for granted that I can come before the holiness of God and not be destroyed because of Jesus. When was the last time I thanked him for that? When was the last time I was on my face before him saying, Jesus, thank you that I can be, approach your holiness of God, the holiness of God, and not be destroyed by it, but be transformed by it. 
Sorry, I'm a little fired up here. I apologize. I'm just going to go for it. Because of Jesus, we have this gift. So it just begs the question, so then where is God's holiness now? It's here. It's wherever you call on the name of Jesus. It's wherever. We can experience moments of his beautiful kingdom right where we're sitting, in our car, at work, at school, wherever. It's such a beautiful gift and we're not destroyed or transformed. In her book, uh, Holier Than Thou, Jackie Hill Perry writes this beautiful quote and I wanna take a look at it. It says this, we have supposed that the way to help people be holy is to just tell them to stop sinning. When in fact, lasting transformation, I love this line, is a spiritual consequence of beholding the glory of the Lord. Second Corinthians says this, and we all who with unveiled faces, and that's just a call back to the reality that we don't have to take the steps to become ritually pure anymore. We can just approach the holiness of God. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit that's why we're here, to behold, to set our sights on higher love, to see who Adam hid from, who the psalmist sang to, who the prophets spoke for, who the disciples walked with, and who Jesus made known. Human holiness is aligning our hearts and our attitudes and our actions and our motives to the reality that God is the author and the creator of all life. But we're not forced to do this. One of the most incredible things about Yahweh God is that he doesn't force us to gaze upon his holiness. He doesn't force us to change. He invites us to. And we get to decide to accept that invitation or not. And I've heard it said the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. I love this. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so because he's a gentleman, because we're not gonna be forced to change, human holiness requires that we participate in intentional transformation, that we actually have to make some decisions to say, I'm actually gonna fall in line with the way of Jesus here. I'm not being forced to, it's not because I have to, but because I want to. So if human holiness is all those things, aligning our hearts, attitude, actions, motives, to the reality that God is the creator and author of all life, then it must also be true. And I would say that this goes without saying, except for I know the wickedness of my own heart, that it must also be true that human holiness also means that we put away, that we remove all that is in our hearts, attitudes, actions, motives that are contrary to God's holiness. And this is where it gets really, really, really difficult. See, I, I don't know every one of your individual stories. I know some of you all. But I know that you know them. You know your stories. And so in your life, there may be some things that you feel right now that is right on, that is lined up with the holiness of God. And to that, I'd say, praise Jesus, keep fighting. That's really, really good. But maybe there's something in your life that you know is off. 
And even as I'm talking about this right now, that thing is coming to your mind and you know, like there's no question, it's contrary to God's holiness. First, if that's you, I need you to hear me right now. These next words are really important. Whatever that thing is that came up in your mind, it's not too big for Jesus to save you from, to heal you from, to forgive you from. It's not. You remember saying, yeah, but you don't know what it is. No, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. It's not. It's not too big. Remember we were just talking about God's sheer size? I guarantee you it's not too big. More on that in a second. But may I also say that sometimes those things in our lives that we know are off, well, at least we know it. And we can call that thing out. Sometimes the more difficult things to point at land in this massive section of our lives that I'm going to affectionately call the gray area. It's gray. It's gray. And some people are far more comfortable with more gray than others. It's all around us, right? We see it everywhere. There's gray, there's gray area everywhere. For example, just right out here in 217, it goes from three lanes to two lanes. You all know where I'm going, don't you? And all of a sudden, before that third lane goes away, there starts to form a line in those two lanes, all the way back. And some jokers get into that far right lane and just rip down that right lane and come over at the last minute. I need to tell you, that's me. I'm just gonna be straight up with you all. I am a third lane guy. Here's the deal. The lanes are supposed to be driven in. Like that's just, that's a, like if you look up how to drive on a road, they say drive in the lanes. Like I mean, it's just like you drive and then you just cut over like a zipper and it's really fast. If you line up, it, actually, you know what? Y'all keep lining up. It's fine because I'm coming and I'm probably late for something and I'm gonna save me 10 minutes if y'all just stay in that left lane, all right? Like, here's the deal. I've got an Oregon, I have a white truck, Oregon sticker on the back, Sco Ducks, and um, I'm coming. So just let me go on by and just wave. I'm, I'm on my way. It's great. Is it right or wrong? It's great. It's great. Americans love our lines. We love it. But not all of us have to. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's great. I was talking to a guy a while ago, and every year and a half, he returns his vacuum to Costco, whether he needs it or not. I mean, like, I don't know. Some people are more comfortable with gray than others, right? Is that gray? I don't, is that, right? I'm not saying any of these things are right or wrong, y'all. I'm just pointing at the awkwardness of it, okay? But it, but it goes beyond that, doesn't it? And we all know it does. So let me take a step deeper. How, how much violence or language or sex can be in a show before it's not okay. How many drinks are too many? My wife and I, we, um, we worked a lot with our young adult ministry for a lot of years and we would talk with couples, young couples all the time and it was like, okay, um, we're starting to date, so how far is too far? Or the, the Bible doesn't really say anything about weed. So, what, you know, it's gray. 
The problem with the gray areas is that they're gray, right? And in light of this conversation, though, and in light of God's holiness, I just wonder, are we asking the wrong question? It almost feels like those questions in the gray area are simply like, how close can I get to the line without sinning? If I, like, how close can I go? When the reality is now you're just making this about a list of rules, is now it's just semantics. Because the reality is that what if my question isn't so much how close to the line can I get, but instead, God, what are you calling me to step into next? What if I submit my entire life, my, my mind, my, my thoughts, my will, my sexuality, my personality, what if I submit that all to you and then Jesus, you tell me where you want me to go, me, and I will step into where you're calling me. There's an obedience pattern, a blessing pattern in scripture. You see it through whole, all of scripture. It's hear and obey, hear and obey. A sin pattern through all of scripture is see and take see and take. But if we're going to hear and obey, that's blessing. Hear and obey, hear and obey. And so if, is, is drinking a glass of wine wrong? Absolutely not, because Jesus did it. But maybe for you, God has asked you to put alcohol down. Maybe he's saying, no more for you. Which, does that mean then that you get to beat that standard over somebody else's head? No, absolutely not. But what you'd get to do is follow Jesus with what he's asked you to do. And if we get to follow Jesus, if all of us individually follow Jesus with what he's asked us to do and then allow the spirit to overflow out of us so that we're not looking at the plank in our brother's eye, but we're taking care of our own stuff first. There's going to be unity as a family and we're going to see his kingdom come. Like so many relationships have been destroyed because we look at the speck in somebody else's eye first, because we're asking the questions, how close is too close? And this is what I'm gonna do. And if you don't do it, then you're not following Jesus, right? When the reality is that the Holy Spirit is individual and he's personal and he's a gentleman. And if he's calling you into something, then you best hear and obey what he's asking you to do. This is what this David was pointing at in Psalm 51, when he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Why is this important? Why does it matter? Because Jesus is coming again. And there's a lot of work to do. His kingdom is, we get to be about expanding his kingdom. And I want to be ready when he comes. And when our heart posture is long obedience and becoming more like Jesus, then some of these gray area questions just get a lot simpler to answer. I mean, I don't know, like I'm sitting there, would I be watching this show if Jesus was sitting next to me? I mean, maybe that's our, I don't know. And we don't like to talk about it this way because the truth of the matter is the gray area, when, when we're choosing to do something that's not in line with God's holiness, even if it's in that med, that gray area, when we are actively choosing to do something that's not completely in line with God's holiness, we are making an active decision to worship the golden calf over the creator. Man, I don't like to think about it that way. Because it's gray. No. Holiness requires active participation. 
for transformation. And, and it doesn't happen isolated. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. You can't just like bury yourself in a room and then be transformed. You actually like need people to hold you accountable, to walk back and forth. We, it's not about isolation. It's about a community. And right now, the community that I partner, that I'm a part of, it's so beautiful. We've gotten past all that weird, awkward stage because it is there. We've gotten past all of that to this point that now our community, I know that I can make it to Tuesday night because I'm gonna have community that night and that's life for me. It's, it's, like, it's like what I need to be filled up again and that's a beautiful place to get with community and I know that it's hard to get there but it's worth, it's worth the fight because, because transformation from the Holy Spirit needs a community of people around you encouraging you, pushing you, calling you forward that, that knows your junk, that knows what you need and can come alongside of you. It's so beautiful. As we constantly submit our desires, our, our, our motives, our attitudes to him as a community. So let me go back to the text this morning and we're gonna land the plane. I know I'm a little bit over, I apologize. So let's go back to our text. He starts his prayer saying, God, you are in control. Then he moves on, God, fill us with your spirit so that we can extend love and patience and joy and peace to those around us while we were growing. And finally he says, God, give us the strength to align our hearts with your spirit to do the deep work of digging out the things in my life that I've allowed to just hang around, create in me a clean heart. Paul's not just pointing at a right now transformation, but he's pointing forward. He's saying from now until the return of Jesus, be blameless and holy. He's pointing at the process of sanctification, of long obedience in one direction. He's saying, God, come. Allow your holiness, God, to not destroy me, but to transform me, to shape us into the life, into the image of his son more and more every day. So there's just three things I want you to hear as we leave here. Three things to like write down and say, this is, this is what this week looks like for me. Three things. First, recognize God's power and authority. Two, love others really, really well. And three, start being more like Jesus. So I have a problem with this slide. Maybe, maybe it hit you sideways. I hope it did. I have a problem with this slide. I actually intentionally put this up there because this is what I don't want you to take away from today. Don't, don't, because this is impossible. I don't want you to take this away. So if you're gonna take a picture of it, that's fine. Just make sure you put a note like not this, all right? <laughs> I wanna try this again. Let's land the plane today. There's one thing I want us to know. The passage we're studying today is a prayer. It's not a list of things we have to go and do, but it's, it's a prayer. It says, Spirit, if there's a speck in my eye, I want to get it out. And I want to be patient with those around me who also have stuff to work on. But I need you, Spirit. I need you, Spirit. So there's actually just one thing I want us to do this morning. Take these things and bring them straight to the feet of Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.